Hello and welcome back to Thoughts on Walks. This is episode number four. Glad to have you with me again. So today I'm going to continue the uh, story of Albert Hubbard. And uh, if you have not listened in to episode three yet, you may want to have a listen in there. But I will, I'll start off with a quick recap. So Albert Hubbard was... Uh, Born in uh, 1856 in Illinois, and uh, son of a country doctor, and uh, he um, was a bit of an entrepreneur. And at the age of 16, he started uh, working for the uh, Larkin and Weller Soap Company. I'm honestly not sure if it's called Larkin and Weller or Weller and Larkin. He was related to, as luck would have it, both. Uh, sides of that company, uh, both the Wellers and the Larkins. And, um, but there was a breakup of the company, and Albert Hubbard moved with John Larkin to Buffalo, New York, and they had the Larkin Soap Company here in Buffalo. And uh, Albert was 19 when they made that move, and I had mentioned that he was a major stockholder in the company, but at around the age of 37, he sold his shares to the company and uh, ventured out on his own, bought the Roycroft Press, the, the actual press, the name, and the trademarks in uh, the little village where he lived, uh, East Aurora, New York. And uh, the Roycroft Press continued on, uh, printing Albert Hubbard's Little Journeys and uh, the magazine called The Philistine and uh, some other books as well. And I mentioned that he was a kind of a marketing genius, a real innovator when it came to advertising, uh, putting out different trim lines of books so the uh, everyday laborer could afford a book, uh, but he also produced, or the press also produced, incredibly high-end, uh, highly collectible editions of uh, art, what we call art books, excuse me, almost got ran over there, somebody's in a hurry, and uh, so uh, things were going along pretty smoothly, um, Albert Hubbard and the Roycroft, he called them the Roycrofters, uh, the Roycroft employed uh, a lot of a lot of folks, and he would hire artists and artisans, and uh, anytime they needed something, they kind of scratched their own itch, if they needed furniture, he hired some folks to make furniture, and if other people liked it, then he would sell it, and they'd make some more. If they uh, uh, they liked a certain book, they printed it. They liked a certain article, they printed it. And he had all of this readily available advertising space for any of the goods that they made uh, in the magazine, The Philistine. And so things were going along pretty well. As I mentioned, they had tens of thousands of subscribers just for that little magazine. But then what really set things off was in 1899, as the Spanish-American War was developing, um, Albert Hubbard's son, Bert, uh, was at the dinner table and had mentioned this uh, Lieutenant Andrew Rowan, who apparently President McKinley at the time needed to send an emissary to talk to the leader of the Cuban resistance in the, somewhere in the mountains of Cuba uh, named General Garcia. And uh, 
uh, Albert Hubbard was very interested in the story and uh, decided that he was going to write a short essay on it, just a, what he called a literary trifle, um, just to fill up some empty space in one of the Philistine magazines that was getting ready to go to press. And of course, you don't let a magazine go to press with empty space. You have to fill it with uh, uh, advertising or an article or something. So he wrote this, again, what he called a literary trifle about uh, Lieutenant Rowan and uh, taking a message from President McKinley to General Garcia. And he wrote about how uh, when given the message from President McKinley, uh, Lieutenant Rowan didn't ask any questions. He just went off and he did the mission. He did the task. He didn't ask how. He didn't ask why. He didn't ask for a lot of resources. He saluted smartly and he went off to go do his thing. And as luck would have it, uh, as soon as the edition went to press, the, uh, within days, they got a call for copies of that article. And uh, the biggest call they got was from a guy named George Daniels, who was in charge of the New York Central Railroad. And I think he wanted something like 10,000 copies of this. There, it may have been more, it may have been, maybe 100,000, I may have that wrong. But uh, it was so many copies that there's no way this little Roycroft Press could develop that many copies. And uh, so, again, Albert Hubbard being the marketing genius, he uh, licensed that to them the right to reprint copies from other printers. So he's, he's into marketing, he's into licensing his product, he's really attacking this entrepreneurship from all different angles. And uh, the reason they liked this article so much, it was very ironic because here's Albert Hubbard, this yearning for simplicity, brings him to East Aurora. He builds this almost a commune-like uh, community here in the Roycroft, hiring artisans and, and local farm kids to produce things and training them. And I'll, I'll get into more of that in a minute. Wow, that must have been loud. I'll get into more of that in a minute. But so here he is on the one side, the advocate for the everyday man. Uh, and on the other side, in this message to Garcia, it uh, really expounds, um, you know, don't, don't, don't ask a lot of questions, work hard for your boss, um, be, a, be a doer, not an asker, don't, uh, don't, make, don't make waves and so forth. So it, was, it really appealed to the captains of industry. Uh, but it was from this guy who was espousing the, the, um, these other qualities of the everyday man as well that were, that were in line with the arts and crafts movement of the, of the era, uh, which was really a, um, a fight against uh, industrialization. So, uh, but he, he couldn't deny that, that desire for this article. And at the time, it, had be, it became the most popular uh, item in print uh, next to the, uh, the Bible. It was, like, it was like the Bible, the dictionary, and then this message to Garcia that he put out. And it's still, uh, it's still an article that's studied. You have to 
remember it's in the vernacular of the day, but um, it's still an article that is studied. If you just went on Wikipedia, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to a message to Garcia. It's essentially, in, in its day, it was a blog post that went viral and, um, and just propelled Albert Hubbard and the Rycroft effort uh, to fame, and in some cases, worldwide fame, because the, the, uh, it was translated into numerous languages, and it was just a hit uh, all across the world. Albert Hubbard ended up joining the vaudeville circuit and giving lectures, and his lectures were always sold out. So a lot of the time during the winter months, he would leave East Aurora, he'd go on the vaudeville lecture circuit, and then he'd, he'd come and go off of the lecture circuit and, um, and then come back to the Rickroft to, to, uh, to run things. So in the meantime, there's all these different artisans that came uh, to live and work at the Rycroft. And at its peak, it had about 550 employees in this little tiny, tiny village of East Aurora, uh, you know, former horse town. And, uh, and the, the Roycroft campus takes up uh, in, in more than a block of the village, right in the middle off of uh, Grove Street. I'm walking through that now. And uh, so Albert Hubbard had so many people that would come to see him that he literally had to build an inn. <laughs> and uh, so before I get too much into the inn, I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit about the original print shop. So uh, between that period of 1895 to 1899, uh, he had built a what was the first print shop. Uh, so he moved that Roycroft Press that he purchased from Main Street from the, the, the gentleman he worked with. His name was uh, Harry Tabor. And when Albert Hubbard bought it, he moved the uh, press into uh, a structure that he built that looked like a church. And, and, and Hubbard said it was inspired by the uh, chapel where uh, William Wordsworth was buried that he visited when he was in England. And the press was in the basement because, of course, it was a printing press. It was so heavy. And uh, it was in the basement. And on the next floor up uh, was uh, kind of a multi-use open area that uh, um, was used for binding and so forth. And then the upstairs and sometimes the downstairs, again, it was multi-use, was used from uh, some of the... Uh, uh, local farm girls that were hired to do hand illumination of the pages. So they would colorize these pages in, in the drawings. And uh, Albert Hubbard's wife, Bertha, supervised that. And uh, so everything was done uh, at that point by uh, mostly hand and a little bit of machinery. But there was uh, leather workers involved, of course, uh, printers, uh, all sorts of folks, and uh, when Message to Garcia went viral, they uh, they really couldn't uh, handle all of that effort. So, w with the funding from that, they started to to expand the campus quite a bit. Uh, the uh, they started building a new print shop, and they also built a uh, what they called the chapel, which 
it's not a chapel in religious sense. It's a chapel of the, um, it meant a guild hall for printers. So they use the chapel to kind of show their, their different uh, products and have meetings, have speakers that would come in. But throughout this era, people came from all over the country. Uh, it was a who's who of people that visited the Roycroft in the village of East Aurora. And uh, people, again, captains of industry like um, Harvey Firestone and Henry Ford would come here. Um, uh, I mean, it was uh, there was uh, suffragists. There was uh, the abolition movement. Was um, there was the, the you know the old speakers of the abolition movement because we were after the American Civil War at that time, but a lot of different free thinkers, and uh, but all of these people would come to visit Albert Howard and the Roycroft, and uh, so eventually there's this huge inn called the Roycroft Inn. I'm standing across from it right now. There's a special guest house with all these different visitors who used to visit there. And actually, I'll probably be able to put a link in uh, uh, in that uh, to just the, to show um, the level of uh, visitor that would come here. There was, you know, um, presidents. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt came here. Um, it was literally reads like a who's who. And as people would come here, they would stay uh, at the inn and... Um, Albert Hubbard expected them to uh, to take part in the in the chores. So here you are, you're a, you're a resident or a guest at the inn, and he expected you to take part in chores of chopping wood and maybe go out to one of the the Roycroft farms that surrounded the area that's provided food for the inn and help collect food and. Uh, uh, you know, gather in the hay and so forth, and th that's just how it was. That was it was like kind of a summer camp for uh, rich people and and uh, free thinkers and uh, this, a bit of society's misfits and thinkers and so forth. It was just um, an amazing place to be, and um, and Albert Hubbard put all of this together. And as you walk around through the inside of the the uh, inn. Uh, there's still a lot of the Roycroft furniture that was made. And he numbered the furniture. So as you were staying here as a guest, if you saw a piece of furniture that you liked, there'd be a little number carved in there, and you would take that number up to the front desk, and uh, that was the catalog number of that piece. You could order that piece and have it put on your bill, and they would deliver it to your home. Uh, there were Roycroft shops in all of the major department stores of that era, so if you lived in, say, Chicago or, or uh, San Francisco or Los Angeles uh, you, and you went into a department store, um, much like they have, uh, say, in the men's department, they have the Ralph Lauren section. Well, they had a Roycroft section uh, in these department stores that sold wares from the Roycroft, uh, copper goods, um, Leatherwork, books, of course, furniture was big. So all, even uh, china and pottery and things like that. So all of these different things that uh, different directions as an entrepreneur that Albert Hubbard took the uh, campus in were pretty amazing when you think about it and revolutionary for that for that era. He took a lot of the ideas that he developed when he was working at Larkin and he brought them over uh, to the Roycroft. So. And, and 
true to uh, its development as part of a, um, a stand against uh, industrialization, uh, he ran the campus that way. He would have uh, uh, exercise breaks for all the workers. Men and women were paid the same. Uh, a lot of the farm girls and farm boys that worked in the area, uh, they never had access to things like a, um, a library and so forth. He opened his library to the workers. He made sure that there was pianos in the different spots where the workers uh, lived so they could entertain themselves. They had uh, bonfires and, and uh, outlying camps that they would hike to. And uh, it was really like, it sounds a bit like a commune. And some people, when you're reading uh, historical books about the Roycroft, they, they, they call it a commune. I don't really think it was necessarily that way because... It wasn't all for the common good. It was a it was a commercial enterprise, but it was really run like a small community. And to think that it still exists is amazing. So, with the expansion of the campus following this uh, this post that went viral, this message to Garcia article that went viral in the Philistine, um, there was a huge need for expansion. That little print shop that he originally built uh, just. Uh, they couldn't keep up with the orders. And uh, even when they temporarily moved things over to the chapel, that couldn't uh, uh, keep up with orders, and they had to build a much larger print shop. And uh, so all of, these, all of these buildings were built with uh, field stones from the local area. Um, Albert Hubbard had this... Uh, uh, I don't want to call him a zany sidekick, but he was kind of a sidekick. He was the he was the campus handyman, and his name was Anson Blackman, and uh, they called him Alibaba. He kind of looked like an Alibaba type character, and that's what that was his nickname. They called him Alibaba. Well, Albert Hubbard called him in one day and told him uh, that he had put an ad in the the local village newspaper. Uh, called the East Aurora Advertiser. It's still the local village newspaper. Um, but he put an ad in there for the, uh, to the local farmers um, and said he would give a silver dollar for every wagon load of field stone that, you would, that they would bring to the corner of Maine and Grove. And so armed with this cachet of, of uh, silver dollars, Alibaba stood on the corner of Maine and Grove, which is where I am right now, um, and uh, 1,500 wagon loads of field stone later, uh, they had enough raw materials to build uh, not only the chapel and the huge print shop, uh, but also um, a wall that surrounds uh, most of the campus uh, of, uh, that's made by field stone and stands about three foot high. And uh, it is pretty amazing stuff. Um, now, Albert Hubbard's mentality thinking about this was, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't real popular to hire all these farm boys and farm girls from the local area. It's pulling them from the farms took them away from the farmers. And uh, this was a way for Albert Hubbard to make amends a bit, I think, with the farmers in order to, you know, they had these field stones that got in the way of the crops. They were worth nothing. They got in the way. Um, if they put them on a cart and delivered them here, they'd get a silver dollar, which was, uh, which was nothing to sneeze at at the time. And then he also thought, what are they going to do with that silver dollar? That silver dollar, uh, those were rarer in the time. Um, but he knew that when somebody spent that silver dollar here in the village, the other um, 
businesses in the village would know exactly where that silver dollar came from, um, which was just genius on the part of uh, Albert Hubbard. So using a little bit of ingenuity and, to get the raw materials, but also in the manner that he purchased them and um, the second and third order effects of, of, uh, of those silver dollars was really just pure genius. And it just, that is a major part of the entrepreneurial spirit. So the, the, um, the print shop, the second print shop, uh, which the entire uh, basement, a slightly elevated basement, a first floor, and then the crenellated tower, um, it looks like a castle. So it's, uh, that, that's all field stone. And then the upper story and uh, the rafters are uh, uh, split, excuse me, are split beam. So it looks very, um, it looks like something you'd see that would be plopped in the middle of uh, the English countryside. And uh, stained glass windows and hand-carved uh, cornerstone oak doors. Uh, just beautiful and nicely restored here on the campus. Uh, it's just a, it's a pretty imposing structure. I remember going by as a little kid, and these just looked like castles in the middle of this little village. And to get to give you an idea of the scale of this, uh, the when the print shop moved uh, from what was originally that uh, that the church, the the wood clabbered church that that he built initially, that looked like uh, that reminded him of where William Wordsworth was buried, into the second print shop which is all uh, split fieldstone. There were 27 presses in the basement of the print shop, which were as many at, as were used in, at the New York Times at the time. So the scale of the operation here is, um, is massive. They were also the largest producers by far uh, of all specialty um, papers that were produced in the United States and even uh, vellums uh, from Italy and so forth. So th it was a, a very, very big operation for specialty papers and, and print, period. And it was a major force within this tiny little village. And, uh, and uh, getting back to some of the workers here, uh, I had mentioned that uh, uh, how he had equal pay for men and women. Uh, he he hired people who had sometimes a criminal past, uh, but he had a lot of people flocking here to uh, to become part of that Roycroft ideal. And uh, if they didn't work out, uh, he'd give them a chance. But if they didn't work out, he would always uh, tell his right hand man, uh, not Alibaba, but his kind of his, his executive was uh, a guy named Felix Shea. He'd say, make sure that they get shown over to the 4 o'clock, which meant the 4 o'clock train uh, out of East Aurora back to Buffalo. But uh, the master marketer that he was, <laughs> he, uh, when they printed postcards of uh, the Roycroft campus, they, w they would, uh, uh, in an early version of Photoshop, they would have artists, uh, after the photos were taken, uh, paint out things like uh, smokestacks on the... Um, on the negatives, so when they printed the postcards, there was no sign of industrialization. Where f where factories would use a um, uh, a steam whistle or or what have you to signal the end of the day, or an assembly or something like that. Albert Hubbard and the Roycrofters used a bell, a giant bell that still stands on the corner of uh, on the second print shop.
And again, there was artisans from of all types uh, that he would hire to uh, uh, to come here, and and part of that deal was that they they were an artisan in their own right, but they also had to be a teacher and to pass on their craft to um, to other workers here on the uh, campus. And one of the most I mentioned Alex Jean Fournier, uh, one of the painters um, that was uh, a Roy Crofter. Uh, I mentioned him yesterday. He was a painter of the Barbizon School, and some of his paintings still are—they're um, uh, actually like like frescoes in the um, over in the Roycroft Inn. And um, but another, uh, probably one of the most famous artisans that was here was Dard Hunter, and um, Dard Hunter was a master in uh, in glass and print. Um, he was just—he was just like a, a every medium you can think of. Uh, Dart Hunter would explore, and uh, he was—he was also um, he developed the Roycroft fonts. Uh, so a lot of his print, if you—if to this day, if you look up uh, Dart Hunter uh, type, you will see the different um, fonts of uh, uh, that he has for that he developed for printing. And then as I walk along. Uh, I'm on Grove Street, which is the uh, the address of the Roycroft campus. As I walk along uh, up Grove to Maine, and I turn the corner, it's going to be a little bit busy. But on the north face of the Roycroft Chapel, there is a... Um, I don't want to call it a sculpture, but it's like a, a relief on the um, on the gable of the the chapel, and it is a face, and it's called the, the I think it's called the North Wind or the North Face, and uh, I'll try and snap a picture of it or find a picture of it and uh, put it on the show notes. But when you look at that, it looks like uh, the Cowardly Lion from the Wizard of Oz, and uh, the interesting thing with that it was done by a man named Jerome Connor. An artist, and uh, uh, the legend is that it was inspired by the, uh, the some of the drawings for the artist who drew the uh, the cartoons and the characters for the Philistine magazine, and then another magazine that Albert Hubbard um, also started called the Fra F R A, um, and uh, this artist did the. Uh, the the character paintings and that and and uh, illustrated that his name was W W Denslow so Jerome Connor did the North uh, North Wind or the North Face based off of characters from W W Denslow legend has it and again that North North Face looks like uh, the Cowardly Lion well if you look up W W Denslow who was the Roy Crofter. He is also the original illustrator of L. Frank Baum's masterpiece, The Wizard of Oz. So there's so much history that is tied together on this little campus that uh, I, could, I could literally go on for hours. I have missed and left out a bunch, but uh, there's a couple of twists to the story as well. And I think I'll leave those for another episode of Thoughts on Walks. But what I what really strikes me is um, as I, I'm on my walks, 
in the morning or the afternoon, whenever, is I love to walk through this campus as part of my walks and just soak in the history. Uh, as I'm walking along the wall now, I'm, uh, I turn the corner off of Main back onto Grove, but I'm looking at these split field stones that Alibaba and the other workers um, hand split. And it was the workers, it was the, the, the folks who, they didn't hire a contractor to build this, they built it themselves. And they had to split these field stones. And I, I have pictures um, of them splitting these rocks. And, uh, you know, if you've ever seen how uh, big rocks are split, they, they drill a series of small holes in and then they put in uh, these round wedges and then drive a wedge in between and it splits the rock. And, uh, but they also use those holes that they drill in with these long poles to, to manipulate and move the rocks around so they can handle them. And as you walk by, and either the wall or the building, you see these holes that are drilled in to uh, these rocks that are still there. These are the, these are the half of the hole is there because it was split. But you just, you realize that that was, this was all done by hand. And it was all uh, done by workers who were scratching their own itch and it all derived from one, one man's vision. And, and a lot of people uh, that were behind him made this happen. And what inspires me the most is, now, uh, I have to put a disclaimer out there. Albert Hubbard was certainly not a perfect man. Um, he, had, he had his flaws, many flaws. And there's a lot of people who study him now who revere him, but, they, but you, have to, you have to look at the, his, the whole person concept. And he had an awful lot of flaws, which we'll discuss next. But, but here was a guy who uh, realized that as successful as he was financially, you know, sometimes we find ourselves climbing that ladder, what we think is the ladder of success or the career ladder, and you get to the top and you realize you're on the wrong ladder. And, and he started over again. He started his second half um, and, um, and built this, this enterprise that went from a dream into employing 550 people. And when you, uh, whether you know it or not, his actions affect you today with his uh, marketing strategies and, you know, good and bad, they affect you. But uh, little things like the saying, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. That was Albert Hubbard. And as I'm walking across the snow, one of my favorite spots on the campus is an area where they used to, steps, um, the big stone steps, uh, uh, at the second print shop, and there's a, a quarter-sawn oak door that is carved on the front that says, Blessed is that man who has found his work. And if that doesn't ring true, I don't know what does. Um, it's like the saying that um, if, uh, if you do... If you love your work, you never work a day in your life. Or if you find what you love to do, you never work a day in your life. Um, that is absolutely true. And he made that a reality for himself and for a lot of other people on this campus. 
And today, the, in the restored campus, there are, it is full of artisans that, um, that display their work here, uh, sell their work in the shops. This weekend, there is the Roycroft Winter Festival, which uh, will draw thousands of people. And I encourage you to check out uh, their website at RoycroftCampusCorporation.com, I think it is, or just Roy, if you just Google Roycroft Campus, and I'll put a, a link in the show notes as well. Uh, there's also the Roycroft Inn, which is right across the street, which is a beautiful place to stay. And um, I'll go more into the Albert Hubbard story and the Roycroft story on the next episode and uh, kind of wrap things up. But there's a subplot that runs through this that I'll share as well um, that uh, is kind of a darker side of the Roycroft uh, um, history and Albert Hubbard's personal history. But uh, that's the way life is. Life isn't all uh, sunshine, unicorns, and rainbows. So uh, I want to give you the backstory of that as well. But I love walking through here. I love walking in the steps of ghosts. And, um, you know, when it comes to history, I love that. And um, just thinking about how all that applies to uh, lives today and what you can do with your second half, uh, whatever age you are and whatever you determine that second half to be. It's uh, a matter of spending, I kind of define it for myself as when you get to a point in time where uh, you feel like you're more in control of the direction that you're going to take your life. That's the second half. And that can be at 30 or 40 or 50. And um, uh, you get to decide that. So uh, at least that's what I tell myself. Uh, I plan on maxing out my second half to the extent that I can, for sure. So part of that is producing these uh, little episodes here to keep me accountable, to keep myself on track. And uh, I don't know exactly what path that's going to be, but in the meantime, I'm going to maximize every day I can on this side of the grass. So I will get home and I'll process this audio and I'll post episode number four. So you should be able to uh, uh, check show notes as well if I mention anything, any links that uh, uh, something you're interested in. Again, I encourage you that if you... uh, If you find any of this useful or interesting in any way and you think somebody else might, please share it with them. And uh, I still don't really know if there's uh, anybody listening to this, but uh, it may take some time or it may just just be for me. Uh, But if you leave a review on iTunes, little rating and review, that'd be great. Just remember that... uh, uh, the audio is raw. It's going to stay that way because it's just me out walking. But uh, I would love to hear from you, hear your thoughts. And if there's any uh, topics that you want me to bring up on a walk, I would certainly entertain that. So make the most of the rest of your day. I hope you uh, embrace some simplicity in your life. And we'll talk with you on the next episode of Thoughts on Walks. Have a great day.